Pastor John had covered uh, some of that last week, uh, but we are going to focus on specifically verses uh, 12 uh, through 16 this morning. But I'm looking forward to getting into this with you. It's every time. I mean, I feel like I get into these texts in Philippians, and I feel like I know what's going on when I get into them, and then they rock me. So I hope that this, uh, the Spirit uses it as powerfully in your life as he has been in mine as well. So uh, let's take a moment to pray, and then we will consider God's word. Oh, also, before we pray, any kids ages three through second grade, Miss Margie's headed back to children's sermon time, so you can go ahead and meet her. She might already be headed back, so uh, you might have to escort your kiddo to classroom A, but now let me pray. All right. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege and opportunity to come together and, and read it, to hear it proclaimed. Lord, as we, we just prayed a few moments ago, you, you tell us that your word is effective and powerful. It accomplishes exactly what you desire it to accomplish in our lives. So Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you might apply this word to our hearts. We pray that you would move in our minds, that you would renew them. We pray that you would convict us where necessary and encourage us in our walk with you. And we pray that you would move through us in a way that, that this word does not return void, but that it actually goes out into your world and has a, a practical and, and significant impact on those around us. We pray, Lord, that as we consider this this morning, that you would teach us, that you would help us to understand, and that most of all, you'd be glorified, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, one of the things that we notice if you look across different people groups is that every culture has what I would call uh, milestones, milestones that mark for them what I would call moments of maturity, moments where we go from one season to another and we find that we grew just a little bit. One of the ones that Holly and I have been sorting through with Danny is, is he's right on the precipice of, of starting to say words and starting to walk. And, and that's, for most of us, the, some of our earliest moments and milestones of maturity. We start saying our first words. We start taking our first steps. Before we know it, we've grown up and we're doing things like riding a bike. Or when we turn 16, 18 years old, we start to, to our parents' fear and, and trembling driving a car. Sooner or later, many of us finish up in uh, high school, and we, a lot of us go off to college. And before we know it, many of us have met somebody, and we start a family, we have kids, we, we buy a house, and we really start, in many ways, to, to come of age. But the reality is, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've undergone, your demographic, your means, whatever it is, we all have those coming of age moments. One of the most significant moments in my Jewish upbringing in this was my bar mitzvah. So I asked my mom and dad this week to send me a couple pictures of that, and I showed Pastor John, and he's, he didn't even recognize me, so that's okay. Uh, so this is me back in the day, uh, my mom and my dad next to me, my dad looking very Gentile as usual. And then this is me up there on the, they call it the bima, but it's essentially the, the stage or the, the place where you'd read the scriptures. This is not during a service. I was posing in order to look good uh, for this, but that's actually a lot, what it, that's a lot what it's like. And then finally, this is the Thursday uh, before my bar mitzvah. The guy on the right uh, is wearing what you call tefillin. So when you're reading the New Testament and Jesus is talking about uh, phylacteries, that's what he is talking about there. So in the little boxes on their head and on their arm is scripture. So they, they take very literally the command of Deuteronomy to bind God's word upon your arm and between your eyes. Anyway, figured you would get a kick out of that. But for many of us, 
Uh, we, we've been to a, a bar mitzvah, I've heard about what it is, but if you're not familiar, what it actually is, it, is this moment in, in the life of a Jewish boy or girl when, when they come of age, when they become a man or a woman uh, according to the faith. And so what you do is you stand up before the congregation, you take ownership of your faith before them, you read the scriptures in Hebrew, and then you give a, a little talk about what that means to you. It's a horrible way to do personal Bible interpretation, but for the sake of it, everyone is all excited for you and you do it nonetheless. But when you're a kid, one of the things that stands out the most is the party that comes after it because it's pretty significant. I mean, people spend tons of money. It's, if you've been to a wedding party, it's really very similar to, to a wedding celebration. Like you get a ton of people and they bring tons of gifts and, and they give you lots of money and, and you're like 13 years old and you have no idea uh, what to do with any of it. But, but apart from the party, apart from the, the actual bar mitzvah ceremony, it was in that moment that I, I felt a significant sense of ownership and maturing in my faith walk, even though I didn't realize just how far uh, I had to go. But it was a significant moment for me. And I'm sure as all of us look back at our life, we, we can recognize significant moments where we were forced to grow up, where we were forced to mature. Some of us might find those moments to actually be difficult as we look back at them. We had to grow up as a result of something difficult going on in our life, where some of us might have had joyful moments, like a, a wedding or a bar mitzvah, where we, where we are forced to step into the next season, where we finally hit that next milestone. And as we've been looking at the book of Philippians, we've been seeing Paul is pushing this church to act in a mature way, to think in a mature way with regard to their own achievements and with regard to their relationship to Jesus. The whole book of Philippians centers on this Christ hymn in chapter two that we have been talking about that we looked at a few weeks ago. And, and one of the things you find when scholars look at the book of Philippians, it's really hard to nail down exactly what Paul's one point is because he doesn't really have one. His one point is to paint a bunch of vignettes around Christian living all centered upon that Christ hymn in chapter two. So some of the things he's done, he's called them to humility as they're supposed to humble themselves under God. He's called them to unity as they're supposed to work together to serve God well. But most recently in chapter three, what Pastor John had covered last week, is he's looking at these false teachers and he's recognizing that they have a very immature view of what it means to relate to God and to achieve spiritually for him. Because in their view, they say, okay, you have to follow the law of Moses. Even if you've trusted in Christ, you also have to follow the law of Moses in order to demonstrate and in some ways to be a child of God. And Paul says, no, 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 that's, that's not how that works. You guys have it screwed up. So he goes in this tangent. He calls them dogs. He calls them mutilators of the flesh. He, he's really polite to them. And he goes on and, and he names out what we call his, his spiritual pedigree his spiritual resume, and he explains all of his own spiritual achievements, all of his own spiritual growth, and he highlights that, and he goes on to say that compared to Christ, all of those things that I have, they're nothing. If I lose Christ and gain all of those things, I've in fact wasted my life. And he goes on to say that his goal is to know Christ then intimately instead of demonstrating his, uh, his walk with Christ through those things. Okay, so he's like, I want to know Christ intimately. I'm willing to, to suffer for him. I'm willing to die for him. But at the end of the day, I want to experience the power of his resurrection. I want to experience the great power that he has from his right hand that I might know him intimately. 
And so he's talking in chapter three about the immaturity of these false teachers' views when it comes to their spiritual achievement. And as we transition to our text today, where we're gonna look at, he makes this shift from saying, okay, if that's not how we're supposed to do it, how then are we called to think maturely? Look with me at verse 15 real quick. He says, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. The question is, okay, what view is he talking about? What, what are we supposed to take a view of and how are we supposed to do it? So the question we're gonna pose today as we sort through this is this question right here. Whoops, maybe it's not here. I'll just ask the question. How does a mature Jesus follower think well about spiritual achievement? Let me say that again. He's going to shift us away from an immature view okay, of, of spiritual achievement to a mature one. So if we are a mature Christ follower, how should we think about our spiritual achievement? And he addresses this as he answers this for us from, from two angles. Okay, He's going to tell us exactly what we should not do. And then he's gonna tell us exactly what we must do if we are going to be mature in Christ. And so let's look at what we must never do, okay? Well, let's see, there we go. We must always remember that we have not arrived, okay? We must never get to the place where we are content or where we think we have made it. Look with me at verses 12 and then the beginning of 13. Okay, he says, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on. And then in verse 13, he says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. So Paul starts out by saying, we can never feel like we've arrived. We must never come to the place where we think, this is the end of my rope. This is all that God has for me. Because he is under no misconception here. He understands very clearly that he has not arrived, that his current state of affairs say that with everything that he has done, with everything he has given up, he is still yet to see Christ face to face. He is still yet to be in this new creation with him. He still struggles with his own sin. Life is still not uh, uh, easy for him. There, there's a reality in which he's writing this from prison. He understands that this is no easy walk here. He hasn't experienced all the God that God has for him, and so he is unwilling to settle for less. As we think about that this morning, I want to ask us this question. I want us to ponder this. Can we say the same thing? Can we say the same thing? Okay, have we been fooled into settling for less than God has for us? Have we believed this, this cultural lie that says that if we have accomplished something or if we have done something now in this life that we have finally reached all God has for us? Friends, that's a lie. It's a lie straight from the pit. Maybe you've bought into the idea that, that accomplishments, that these, this arrival, that having made it, can be happened apart from full restoration to God. Maybe you say something to yourself along the lines of, if I've mastered this skill, or if I've mastered this craft, then I will finally have arrived. If I land this job, I've been working all these side jobs, I finally got the job that I want. Now that I have it, I have finally arrived. If I've gotten this degree, if I graduate from high school, if I, if I graduate this degree from college to move on into the workforce, I've finally arrived. If I can have this spouse, if I can have kids, if I can get a house, the list goes on and on and on. I remember when I was still single, that was a huge thing for me. I felt like if I could only get married, then I would have arrived, then I would have made it. 
It, it was to the point, I would venture to say, and, and I'll confess to you, that there were moments where it adventured on the verge, if not was, idolatry in my life. And then I met Holly. I met someone who was willing to marry me. And we got married. And I realized super quick after we got married that I had not arrived. There was still so much that I was yet to achieve. There were so many other goals and things that had to be accomplished. I had to get her to like me after that. I had to get her to deal with me after that. So there's a sense in which none of us have arrived. Some of us might process this in terms of if I can get rid of this thing in my life, then I'll have arrived. If I can get rid of this sin in my life, then my spiritual walk will be complete. I will never struggle again. I will be perfectly obedient to Jesus. If I can, some of us think about this in terms of retirement. If I can stop working, if I can rid myself of the daily grind, then I will have finally made it. I'm sure all of us have these things in our lives that we sort through. And, And let me just say this. Those things that I'm naming off, notice that they're really good things. None of these things are bad. Getting a degree get mastering a craft, landing a job, ridding our lives of sin. But here's the thing. If we believe that these things mean that we have finally arrived, then we have sold ourselves short of what God has for us. And at the end of the day, even if we manage to achieve these things, it doesn't matter because all we will have done is reveal that we have an idol and that we're worshiping some other God in the first place. But I want you to notice that that's not how Paul talks about spiritual achievement. That's not what he talks about when it comes to achieving in his life or the fact that he has arrived. He has a different conception. For him, to have made it has nothing to do with anything in this life, but everything in the life to come. He's even already said in chapter 3, if you were here last week, that everything that he's done, all, all of the achievements he's had in his life, couldn't get him to Christ in the first place. It's not worth him dwelling on them. So for him, arriving is not what he achieves, but it is who he gains. And until he has fully gained Christ and he is standing before him in glory, and here's Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant, there is still more to be done. So it is not about what he accomplishes. It's not about what he could ever do because he realizes he is incapable of gaining God's presence on his own. He must fully depend upon Jesus. And if we think about our spiritual achievement in this way, recognizing that, okay, no matter how many good works I do, I will never arrive, that will change the way that we sort through so many things in our life. The first thing it'll do, it'll humble us, right? It humbles us before God because if there's nothing we could do to earn God's presence, then, then what are we doing apart from trusting in Christ alone? But there's the other sense in which it humbles us before one another, And it destroys all sense of self-righteousness in comparison. Because that person that you're looking at that has something that you want or is a little bit further along than you or that person that you're looking down at and you're saying, well, one day you'll be up where I'm at, it all goes out the window because we realize if none of us have arrived, then every one of us is in process. And we are forced to humble ourselves before a holy God knowing that we are all on this journey together. But it does something else. Secondly, is it motivates us. Because if none of us have arrived, then there is still more work to be, due, to be done. And that is where Paul leads us in his next point. He says that, okay, we must never believe we've arrived, but here's what we must do. We must engage in a lifelong pursuit of achieving for Christ. We must engage in a lifelong pursuit of achieving for Christ. Look at 13 and 14 with me. 
Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So what Paul is doing is he's utilizing uh, athletic imagery here for us. He does this in other letters as well. Uh, one example is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is what he says. He says, do you, not, uh, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. So he's utilizing this, this imagery of a, a sprinter running after the goal. Actually, when you're reading the word prize uh, in the NIV here, it's a Greek word, uh, it's skopos, and it, it actually connotates like a finish line, or sometimes it's been used in Greek literature to refer to like an archery target. So it's the place for which he is going. It is severely athletic imagery. But when he says this, look what he says. He says, I do not consider myself to have achieved it. Okay, but what do you do? You forget what is behind, and you strain forward to what is ahead. And as we read that, I just want to caveat this for a minute. When he says he forgets what is behind, I just want to say I don't think that he is claiming ignorance. I don't think he's claiming that those things in his past do not matter and that anything he's achieved has zero value in his life. Because we see, when we look at Paul's story, when we look specifically at the book of Acts, he, he utilizes some of these achievements to do mission for God. So he's not saying, okay, I, I don't know those things are there, or I'm naive to the fact that those things are there, or I don't know how those things impact me now. I don't think that's what he's getting at. I think he's saying, I am not devoted to those things any longer. I'm devoted to the finish line that is ahead of me, and I'm desiring to strain ahead. His focus is, is unidirectional. If you are a sprinter, okay, and you're running down the track, looking back does nothing in order to get you to the goal. And Paul recognizes that really clearly. Unless you think, okay, Paul, you don't understand my circumstances. You don't know how hard my life is. You don't know what, what I'm going through in, in, in my relationships or in my financial status or in, or in my own, my, my sinful brokenness. You don't know what I'm undergoing, Paul. How can you ask me not to look back and to continue to strive? I would venture to say, I think he gets it. Look at the language that he uses here. Straining, pressing on. I don't think that he is under any conceptions that this is an easy race. And yet he's calling us to run nonetheless. He's unwilling to let anything hinder him as he pursues Jesus. Because for him, the, it's not about how easy the journey is. It is about how worthy God is, the one who he is pursuing. He's asking himself, is this a journey that is worthy of overcoming every obstacle? And there are a lot of obstacles we face, aren't there? I'm sure every one of us, if I sat down with you, you could tell me all the things that feel like they want to hinder you in your walk with Jesus. Very quickly, when we, we come to follow Christ, here's what we learn, that it is less like a sprint and is more like a hurdle race, isn't it? You get started, you build up a little bit of speed, and you're like, oh my, oh my, I, I have to get over that. I have to overcome that. I have to do something or else I'm going to crash into it. It is a lot like a hurdle race. There are a lot of hurdles that we have, and they always feel like they want to get in our way. Maybe for, for you here, like, that's a sense of guilt, Maybe you have guilt from things that you have done or experienced in your past, and it feels like it wants to hold you back in the present. Some of us have real trauma that we have faced that, that leaves us paralyzed at certain moments, unable to feel like we can run at all because of what's happened to us, 
or how things have impacted us. Maybe you're hindered by a relationship that you're in. Maybe you're hindered by the relationships around you and the the expectations they put on you that they weigh you down so much that you no longer hear what Jesus is calling you to do. Maybe you're here this morning and you have explicit sin in your life. You know what's going on. You know that it dishonors God and yet for some reason you are content with it. If that's you, friend, let me tell you, that will destroy the race that you're trying to run. You'll end up going backwards before you go forwards again. Maybe for some of our seniors here, you feel like old age, you feel like weakness is the thing that is hindering you to the point where you don't know if you can even get up and walk at all. Not without a walker, right? For sure. There's a sense here where there are tons of things that hold us back. But here's the thing. The Bible's expectation is that we run nonetheless. This idea that we can come to a point in our life where we can stop and say, oh, it's all over now. Guys, that's a, that's a 21st century Western American lie that is severely in contradiction to the scriptures. The Bible says that we can never stop running. In fact, when we look at the new creation, even in Revelation, the assumption is that we're still working. We're still working to serve God. It just looks different then. Okay? Although our achievements, they don't earn us a right standing with God, they still have value. Let me tell you that. Okay? So don't hear this fact that, okay, our spiritual achievements can't save me so that they don't have any value to my life. Because although they are not salvific to you, although they might not be able to save you, they may have eternal value to somebody else. Because the world is watching, guys. The world sees what we do. The world sees us striving. And as they see us striving... People ask questions. People want to know, why, why are you acting in this way? How come you're doing this? And before you know it, someone else has placed their faith in Christ because you continued to run the race. So friends, we can never stop running. We're not even given permission in the scripture to power walk, okay? This is a, this is, this is a sprint. This is legitimate. So if our good works, if our spiritual achievements cannot save us, what does the scripture say that they do? They fit into a new category. They become an expression of worship. Paul, all over the New Testament letters, talks about the works that he is doing as a, a sacrifice to the living God. So here's my question for you this morning. What does it look like for you to strive for Christ today? What does it look like? All of us can do it. It's not a matter of if we can do it. It's how do we do it? Because it will look different depending on who you are depending on your financial means, depending on your maturity and your your Christian walk, depending on the relationships that you have around you. It's gonna look different for every single one of us, but there's some ways that you can discern it. Consider what doors God has opened to you. Consider the relationships that he has already placed in your life. Consider what godly counsel around you is saying to you. How are you gifted and how might you uniquely use that gift to contribute to kingdom work? But we all must strive And we all must run this race that even though it doesn't save us, it has value, it is important, and we are commanded to do it. But there's something apart from all of that far more important. Let me review for us what what Paul has said first. He said, if we are going to think maturely about our spiritual achievement, we must never believe we've arrived. And yet on the other hand, alongside this, we must continue to run this race and achieve for Christ. 
But look with me at verses 12 and 14. This is where it lands this morning. He says, I haven't already obtained this. Okay, so he hasn't arrived. Or I've already arrived at my goal. But I press on. I still continue to achieve. Look what he says. To take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Look what he says in verse 13. He says, he doesn't consider he's made it his own, but here's what he does do. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So you see what Paul has done. He has told us the very reason for our striving in the first place, the the fuel that pushes us along. He has saturated all of the fact that he has not arrived and yet he must continue to strive with Jesus himself. He has identified that Jesus' work on the cross is the fuel that pushes us along, that even starts us on the race in the first place, and that face-to-face meeting in eternity where we see Jesus. As it says in 1 John, we will see him as he is when we see him. That is why we strive. That is what we look forward to. If we're gonna kind of summarize this, we could put it like this. Christ's work is our motivation to strive and his presence is our hope. We must be thoroughly insulated with Jesus if we are going to think rightly about this idea of our good works and spiritual achievement. If we're gonna use a bowling analogy, Jesus is kind of like the bumpers here. That as we we do our work, as we seek to strive and follow God in obedience, Jesus is the one that makes sure that we do not go off the rails. He protects us from misunderstanding what it means to achieve in every area of our life. Because when we see him, when we see him on the cross, we recognize he's doing something for us that we could never have done for ourselves. So we are immediately humbled and we recognize, okay, I'm not trying to earn it. That's for sure. Because I could never do that, nor would I want to ever do that. But when we see where he's taking us by his spirit... When we see the new creation, as it talks about in the scriptures, where no one will ever cry a tear of sorrow again, where no one will ever die again, where our bodies will no longer decay and waste away, where we will no longer be plagued by sin, but here's the thing that's most of all, where God will dwell with us. That relationship that we seek to exercise and grow every day will meet its perfection as we are glorified. When we see that, we realize that is something beautiful and worthy of my entire life. That is something worthy of running for even now as I wait for that day. Guys, a deep love for Jesus cultivates an appropriate relationship to spiritual achievement. Jesus is the one who keeps us in line. So here's my encouragement to you today, to look to Jesus as always. But ask yourself where you're at on this. Ask where you're at in your walk with your own spiritual achievement, with your own desire to strive after Jesus, here's a couple questions you can ask. Have I been running for the wrong reason? Have I been running after Christ in order to demonstrate my own self-worth? Have I been running after Christ in order to compare myself to God and his goodness? Have I been running in order to meet the expectations of those around us? None of those are good reasons to run this race, okay? Ask this, have I lost sight of the glory that awaits me and have I ceased to run after it? A lot of the reason that that we at times, myself included, feel this lethargy, this, this contentment with not striving is because we have failed to see Jesus for who he is and where he's taking us. We must take the time to recognize the beauty of what God has done in Christ, who Jesus is, 
and what he desires to do in our life, because it's profound. And when we see it, it shapes everything about us, including the way that we work in our day-to-day lives. So as we close this morning, I just wanted to to recognize Christ. He is the one that reorients us around our works. He destroys this idea of legalism that we started talking about a few weeks ago. He frees us to run without the pressure of having to prove ourselves to ourselves, to God, to anyone. Because the reality is, is we're never going to measure up to everybody's expectations, let alone God's. And yet Christ has perfectly measured up in our place. So friends, he's worthy and he empowers us to run by his spirit, knowing that, as Paul says in the beginning of Philippians, God will finish that work that he began in us. So as we transition to the Lord's table today, as we we come to take communion, I just want to encourage you to take a moment to ask yourself, have I lost sight of where God is taking me? Have I become lethargic because I've ceased to recognize the incredible and profound nature of God taking on flesh and dying in my place and rising from the dead? And as we do that, I think it will shape us. It will make us not just effective in loving one another and working together, but it will shape the impact that we have in our community because we'll no longer be self-righteous, but we will strive as an act of worship knowing what God did for us first. So let's take a moment to just ponder those things, have a moment of silence, and then we will have a prayer of confession together. Merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought and in word and in deed by the things that we've done and by the things that we have left undone. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, our mind, and our strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, some of us here have lost sight of the beauty of what you have done for us on the cross. Some of us have sought to measure up and to to reach that point of arrival and achievement on our own. All of us in this room have at some point done that. All of us have idols in our hearts that we rely on too heavily, that we believe that they will satisfy us instead of you. Lord, some of us here have, have lost sight of the new creation, the place that you are taking us, the goal, the prize, as Paul says, for which we strive. But Lord, we want to see you. We want to see you clearly. And so, Lord, we come to you this morning and we pray that you would clean our hearts by your spirit, that you would cleanse our minds, that our, our eyes would be set upon you ultimately and you alone. So, Lord, in your mercy, would you forgive what we have been? Would you help us amend what we are and direct what we shall be, Lord, so that we might delight in your will and not just walk in your ways, but run this race that you have set before us, all to the glory of your name. All God's people said. Amen.